all these churchmen, right? What do they say? Oh, put the mask on so you show the love of Jesus. Oh, get the vaccine so you show the love of Jesus. Participating in a lie isn't showing the love of Jesus. Welcome to the Bud Zone Podcast. I'm Bud, your host. The Bud Zone Podcast is for, from, and by saints, our buds in the faith. To edify one another in the faith and to encourage one another to love and good works. We discuss the world, we discuss the church, we discuss the faith, we discuss truth, and we do it with the mind of Christ. Thank you for joining us. Well, welcome to this edition of the Bud Zone Podcast. I am very honored to be joined by Matt Trujella who is pastor of Mercy Seat Christian Church in Milwaukee. And probably, Matt, you're more well-known for authoring a book back in 2013 that was published uh, entitled The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates with a lengthy but really appropriate subtitle, A Proper Resistance to Tyranny and Repudiation of Unlimited Obedience to Civil Government. So. Introduce yourself to us, and then we will launch into a, a discussion about this uh, doctrine that is becoming increasingly more relevant. Sure. Well, I'm 61 years old, so I'm starting to get up there. Um, I've been married 40 years to my wonderful wife. We have 11 children. Six of them are married now. We have 25 grandchildren so far. I've been pastoring at Mercy Seat for 33 years now, which is unusual. The average stay of a minister at a church in America now is two and a half years. Yeah. So I've broken that real big. <laughs> so thank well, great. You're, po- you're kind of populating your, uh, your church. You, you've got an entire <laughs> yeah. congregation that or a uh, family. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, we started a mission called Missionaries to the Preborn. And there were eight abortion clinics here in Milwaukee when we started that mission. And thanks be to God, only two are left now. Oh, and wow. we've seen abortion drop by almost 70, that's seven zero percent over the years since we started back in 1990. Um, so we give thanks to God for all that he's done. I did about 15 months in jail over a four-year period for interposing. Um, at the abortion clinic doors, at the death camp doors between the abortionist and um, the children that he wanted to murder. So, oh my goodness. Yep. This book, first of all, The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, give us a summary. What what is it you mean by that? Yeah, this is really important. Um, It's very simple. Um, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate is that when the higher ranking civil authority makes unjust or immoral law, policy, or court opinion, the lower or lesser ranking civil authority has both the God-given right and duty not to obey. Rather, his duty is to interpose against the evil of the superior authority, and if necessary, to actively resist the superior authority. Um, I often quote from Emperor Trajan, because he's got a great synopsis of the doctrine and giving a sword to a subordinate, he said to him, use this sword against my enemies if I give righteous commands. But if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. 
And that is the doctrine. When the superior authority um, acts lawlessly, the duty of the lesser authorities is not to blithely comply, rather their duty is interposition. And this doctrine of the lesser magistrates, Bud, was actually um, formulated in 1550 by Christian men. Um, what had happened was Luther had died in 1546. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, decided he wanted to reimpose Catholicism, the practice, um, the belief, the rule of Roman Catholicism back on all Protestant lands. And there was only one city in the entire Holy Roman Empire that stood in opposition to him, stood in interposition. And that was Magdeburg, Germany. Now, Magdeburg, Germany was a huge city, over 30,000 people. It was big at that time, had the thickest walls of any city in all of Germany. It was an imperial city, but they interposed under the leadership of a man named Nicholas von Amsdorf. Nicholas von Amsdorf and eight other ministers there in Magdeburg signed the Magdeburg Confession, which we can read now because in um, 2012, we published the first English translation of the Magdeburg okay. Confession. We actually began this project to write this book in 2007 from a prayer meeting. <laughs> oh, yeah. A, birthed in prayer. Um, I have a lot of kids. I pastor, <laughs> run a mission. So, yeah, it took a while. And then I got bogged down with this whole project with the Magdeburg Confession because I kept talking to scholars and librarians and historians and they were saying, yeah, that was the first time it was formalized as a doctrine, was in the Magdeburg Confession. So I just wanted to read it. I knew it was written in Latin, all important theological works were then translated into the German and sent out to the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but I don't read German or Latin, so I wanted to get English. And yeah, many told me along the way, we don't think there's ever been an English translation. So we secured a 1550 original from the Bavarian State Library in Munich, Germany. I hired a guy with a PhD in Latin and Greek from Cornell University, Christian brother, mm -hmm. just impeccable credentials, took it as a hired gun, calls me up two weeks into it and said, how is it possible that this document, so important to what was pillared in Western civilization regarding politics and government, has never been translated into English? And I go, right? <laughs> so like, right? Yeah, no kidding. So anyways, I wrote a a um, historical prelude, an historical postscript, so people could see the historical context in which it was written. We added many footnotes, because if you don't know what they're referring to in some places within the confession, you don't get the punch yeah. that it has. So anyways, we actually published that first in 2012. So it gave us a work from antiquity, so to speak, about the doctrine. And then I finally finished my work in 2013 to give us a contemporary work and in my work, I actually go through all the tenets of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It was painful to make it only 135 pages long, um, but I wanted it to get read. And it has. It sold about 80,000 copies now. Um, and I've had so many people tell me how glad they were um, that it was thinner and that I didn't put a bunch of filler in. Painful for me to do, but. <laughs> well, you're a preacher, so read. words, you know, come natural to you. <laughs> Um, well, that was one of the things I was going to ask you. I didn't realize that you had started far back in 2007. The publishing date in this uh, book is 2013. The question I, I had was, was there a particular, because it's so prescient 
from 2013 to what we're dealing with the last couple of years with the issue of the pandemic and all of these onerous mandates and and edicts that are coming down uh, from on high. So it was very prophetic from 2013, but what was it at that time that really prompted you to want to deal with this? And, you know, as a follow-up question, this has been, you know, even, and I, I travel in reform circles, it's kind of an obscure confession that seems almost provincial. Um, and it's not widely known. Now it is much more widely known, um, in the last couple of years, uh, because of the pandemic and churches wrestling with Romans 13, what's it mean? What's it not mean? But was there something in particular at the time, 2012, 2013, that was going on that, that prompted you to want to publish this and and bring notoriety to it? There was, and you used the word prescient, and that's a good word because people are like, it was almost like you saw what was coming and wrote back then. But here's why I wrote. It's because all the stuff I write about in there was already happening to the preborn. I had been involved in this battle for the preborn for so many years, and I was astounded that there wasn't one governor, not one legislature, not one mayor, not one common council anywhere in the country that would just say no. No one's getting murdered here, that they all blithely went along with this bloodshed. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned being reformed. It was actually a reformed minister back in the early 1990s who first introduced me to this doctrine. And I grabbed onto it right away because I was like, that makes absolute sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it wasn't until I did deep study on it. You know, 15 years later, later in the mid, you know, 2007, 2009, 2010, and began to put all the pieces together, if you know what I mean. But that was really why I wrote the book um, was because of the preborn. And that's why I put it out there. And, you know, the Magdeburg Confession, as far as that goes, you know, um, well, the doctrine, I should say, of the lesser magistrate. Yeah, very unknown. Um, for instance, before I wrote my book, I Googled it. There was less than a page and a half on it mm-hmm. that you could find online. You can't find anything that only has a page and a half on Google. No. <laughs> put in any topic on the planet. <laughs> and it's got, and now you go to it and it has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, specifically dealing with the doctrine of lesser magistrates. So God's done a great work awakening the hearts of his people, his word does speak to all matters of life, including matters of civil government. And I've had many ministers, Bud, tell me that reading that book that I've written on this, for the first time, they were able to see how their Christianity has something to do with civil government matters. And that means a lot to me, because as you know, the form of Christianity we have throughout the West and here in America has prided itself on its indifference to civil government matters. Yeah. And to hurt to the hurt of our nation, because good men left that field, wicked men filled the void, and now they've made their worldview, law, policy, and court opinion. Good's now evil, evil's now good. They've It's insane. All because the churchmen have abandoned and, and taught all their people to abandon the realm of civil government. We are reaping the whirlwind for that right now. So, The doctrine of the lesser magistrate was first formalized by these Lutheran ministers in Magdeburg, Germany, but it was the other reformers who actually furthered the doctrine. Um, For instance, um, Christopher Goodman, who was a protege of John Knox, 
Um, he was in England, wrote a work on this. Um, Beza, of course, Hotman, um, various of the reformists, but I believe the number one best written treatise on the doctrine of lesser magistrate was by John Knox in his 1558 appellation to the nobles of Scotland. The nobles of Scotland were the lesser magistrates of their day. I believe we have it at our website, defytyrants.com. You can still read it today, but you can find it online easy enough or get it from books. It is worth reading. Knox cited over 70 passages of scripture to show that the doctrine is sound in the word of God. Um, so I encourage people to read that. So this doctrine is massively important to today. And that's why I think the book has done so well um, is simply because of the fact people realize, okay, this is a good thing. We have a lawless government and this doctrine shows from scripture and history the fact that we can reign in their tyranny and possibly reign it in bloodlessly. Yes. So when you penned this, did, did you, in the back of your mind, have a target audience? Were you aiming at lesser magistrates that this might get in their hands? Were you aiming at the person in the pew or were you aiming at the pulpit? Uh, because obviously it's applicable all the way, but I'm just curious, did you have a target audience as you were, you were writing this? It's funny you bring that up because people ask me that and I'm always like, yeah, my targeted audience was everybody, everybody, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> everybody you just mentioned, everybody. Okay. So, so like, you're a universalist. Well, I did, I needed to know that. I guess. <laughs> right. The, uh, um, yeah. the interesting thing to back up a little bit with regards to uh, American Christianity and American government, we've got a federal form of government here, which it kind of inherently should be employing this doctrine in practice because you've got the president, you've got the Senate, you've got the House of Representatives, and then you've got, you know, Supreme Court. And these are all supposed to be checks and balances so that if someone gets out of line with what our rule of law is, which is the Constitution, those things are there to offset any infringement on the rights because the assumption is the government's duty is to protect our rights, not to grant them. So that has obviously been eroded over decades now in in the U.S., but then below that would be states' rights. And I don't hear anybody fighting about states' rights. So your motive to do this, uh, your motivation with regards to abortion, uh, obviously states have the right to say no to that. And you see some now doing that, obviously very contentious issue because of the <laughs> depraved society that we're in the midst of and government that we're in the midst of. But the issue of checks and balances at the federal level and the issue of states' rights having been abandoned, what's the implication for that now with this doctrine? First off, what you're seeing is right. You can actually follow the Magdeburg Confession all the way up to the founding of our nation. And it was even referenced by some of our founders, the Magdeburg Confession. What they did is they took that thinking of interposition of the lesser magistrate and, you know, even then, some within the culture had become much more secular. So they liked the term nullification. And they kind of took interposition, wrung all the Christianity out of it, yeah. and called it that. Um, but the truth is, it's all found from the Word of God. It was all based on Christian thought. And um, men in the West decided to pillar that into our government institutions. It was done by design. They had a Christian view of the nature of man that he's wicked and in need of a savior. Our founders here in America 
you know, they intended not to throw off a monarchy to replace it with an oligarchy like the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary has become. They never intended that. What they established was exactly what you described. It's known as a true federalism. I'm not talking about the federal government. I'm talking about federalism. Right. Federalism, you have multiple levels of government, multiple branches at each level. And again, our founders wanted it that way because they understood the nature of man. They didn't want power to reside in a handful of men. They wanted to be spread out. Their intent was that if any one branch or branches began to play the tyrant, another branch or branches would check them, would interpose against the evil that they were trying Mm -hmm. to do. So yeah, that was all understood at the founding of our nation. In fact, just 11 years after the ink had dried on the Constitution itself, um, the Alien and Sedition Act came along, for example, Mm -hmm. and two states defied the federal government over that and issued resolutions in defiance of them, Virginia and Kentucky. And the Virginia resolution was written by James Madison, who was who? The architect of the U.S. Constitution and made it clear that the duty was to interpose to stop the progress of the evil. That was the duty of the states, not blithe compliance, because that's what they've reduced the states now to, like you were pointing out, is mere provinces. Uh, The states have become nothing more than implementation centers of unjust and immoral law, policy, and court opinion by the federal government. That is not what they were meant by our founders. They were to interpose. Thomas Jefferson wrote the resolution for um, the interposition and defiance of Kentucky. And he made it clear there also that anything that the federal government does outside the few delegated powers the states granted to them was null, void, and of no authority. Mm -hmm. So that's how the here in my state, where I'm from, Wisconsin, in 1854, there was a runaway slave named Joshua Glover. And he lived in Racine about 40 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And he worked as a carpenter for two and a half years. Everybody liked him. And all of a sudden, the federal marshals came in, wanted to arrest him. And they did. Brought him up here to Milwaukee, where I'm at, put him in the jail. And a newspaper man printed up handbills, rode up and down the streets of downtown Milwaukee, crying at the top of his lungs as he passed him out. A man's liberty is at stake. Rally at the courthouse at 2 p.m. And lo and behold, 5,000 people gathered. Even Booth himself said he was astounded. How many people yeah. showed up? If you know anything about people back then, they began, they sat down, began to write resolutions. They put together a habeas corpus to get the slave released. It was denied. Um, it's about five o'clock now. Everybody's getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden, the sheriff from Racine shows up, who, by the way, had arrested federal marshals trying to capture the runaway slave down in his jurisdiction, <laughs> down in Racine County. And he has got 120 men with him. They landed by boat <laughs> there in Milwaukee. And all of a sudden, they all see them coming. So they all reconvened, got back together. Well, about 30 men had had enough. There was a church being built across the street. And they took a huge beam, wooden beam, and smashed down the jail door, brought the, uh, you can see God's providence even in that. Because we were like, well, why didn't the sheriff stop him from smashing down the door? Well, in God's providence, just four days earlier, the Germans and the Irish had had a big fight in downtown Milwaukee. I mean, a massive melee, and the sheriff had been injured by it. So now these guys are breaking down the jail door. He's like, I'm not doing anything (laughs) because I got injured four days ago. 
And um, so they bring Joshua Glover out, put him on the back of this flatbed wagon. And he looked out over the sea of faces and he said two words, glory, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. And so they took him and put him on the Underground Railroad. He made it to Canada and died of old age 26 years later. Wow. Well, the federal government wanted to get their pound of flesh. The slave got away. So they went after Sherman Booth, the newspaper man. And this became a battle of jurisdictions that went on from 1854 all the way to the Civil War. Historians and scholars say it was a battle that never was resolved because it became moot after the Civil War. But our Supreme Court and our state legislature defied the U.S. Supreme Court and defied the entire federal government over the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. And in the resolution that our legislature put forth during that time, they actually used the same words Thomas Jefferson used, that um, the actions of the federal court were null, void, and of no authority in the state of Wisconsin. And so this was the understanding of our founders, interposition. Now, as you point out, that's all been lost on us. Um, The Supreme Court has become the oligarchy. All the other branches of government bow down before it, and they like it that way. Because then the magistrate can say, well, I'm against abortion. Or they can say, I'm against automatic marriage. They can say whatever they're against. You know, I'm against all this COVID stuff. But the courts have ruled. So all we can do is obey. So they find it convenient. And the only thing that's going to break that, bud, is the people. They must demand that their magistrates interpose against the federal judiciary, against the Supreme Court. Um, already the Supreme Court has turned down a number of cases that could stop all this COVID stuff. I don't think that bodes well for where they're going to end up ruling yeah. on, this whole, on this whole matter. Anyway, I have a whole teaching about judicial supremacy, <laughs> you know, and pointing out how, how wrong that is and how that's against the thinking of our founders. They viewed anything, anyone having unchecked power was anathema to them. Yeah, exactly. And reasons for these checks and balances, as you point out. So, you know, here's just, I've got a list of all kinds of questions and I know you don't have a whole lot of time, but, but let me just ask the obvious thing. You are a pastor. Why does this matter? Don't you just want to get people saved and what happens (laughs) happens? Um, why is this a big deal from a Christian standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, when I first got involved taking action on behalf of the preborn, I was a young minister I had many older ministers, um, you know, and I respect them. You know, they have many more years than me. And they would all tell me, Matt, you're either going to preach the gospel or um, do your abortion thing. That's what they would call it. And I didn't believe that, but I I couldn't agree with that. It was because I was a Christian that I felt compelled to act on behalf of the pre-board. And here's what I found. Because of my activity in that matter, of defending the preborn, it gave me more opportunity than ever to share the gospel mm-hmm. with people. I don't know if you remember Amy Carmichael. Mm-hmm. She was a missionary that went over to India, found out that these young girls were being used as temple prostitutes. And when she started helping them, her supporters wrote and said, Amy, we just want you to just preach the gospel. We don't want you bothering getting involved in this stuff. And her response was, you know, souls are more or less attached to bodies, she said. And she pointed out the fact, how could these Indian people take the claims of Christ seriously if I just act indifferent 
towards such a gross immorality and injustice. And that's how I feel about it. Yeah. And so what I've noticed is our culture, our form of Christianity is pietistic. And by that, I mean, they've embraced not that piety is bad, piety is good. I'm talking about pietism. It was a movement that came about in the late um, 17th century. Um, I actually write about this at our website, Defy Tyrants. There's like four little boxes that change on the homepage. And one of them is entitled Why Pastors Aren't Involved because people ask me that all the time. And it's because of the form of Christianity yeah. that they think we should have nothing to do with civil government matters, even though God's word speaks to those matters. And so the number one, and they've pillared a bunch of slogans to try to neutralize any Christian from being involved in civil government matters, the number one being, and I'll just use this as an example, but there's many more that I address there on the website. The number one is we should just preach the gospel. You bring up anything about civil government matters, helping the preborn, you know, marriage, helping a good person get a life. Oh no, we should just preach the gospel. That's what they say. Here's how you have to dismantle that. Number one is you have to point out, first off, that's a misnomer. Nobody just preaches the gospel. I mean, do you ever take your wife for a walk? Do you ever play with your kids? Do you ever use the restroom? Okay, so nobody just preaches the gospel. Number two, do you notice when they say we should just preach the gospel? Like, listen next time the next church potluck is announced. No one will jump up when it's announced and say, oh, no, we should just <laughs> preach the gospel. Or when the church softball team is being organized. No one's going to leap up and say, oh, no, we should just... It's only when you bring up civil government matters, that's when they bring that claim up that we should just preach the gospel. It's meant to put a wet blanket over you, to make you feel unspiritual, to neutralize you so you won't be involved in civil government affairs anymore. And of course, we're reaping the whirlwind now because Christian men have abandoned that realm. We have what we call the mission to the magistrates. <laughs> you know, we oh, as like Christian that. men, and this is the history of churchmen, churchmen always went to the magistrates. When they did mission work, they went to the magistrates first. Um, you see that again and again with Patrick, Columba, on down through the line. And also you see that the churchmen understood, even in this country, up until the mid-1800s, there were election sermons where a minister would be invited to city hall or to the state house and he would teach from the word of God regarding civil government, the role, the function, the limits, our duty to civil government. That's all been lost now. And that needs to be revived. It needs, we need to see reformation in this area. And we have to understand that we must speak to the magistrates. I tell people, most Christian magistrates I know um, think and rule no differently than their secular colleagues. Yes. And the reason for that is the pulpits. The pulpits have failed in this area, and that needs to radically change. That was my next question, because my observation would be that we have, that really has been exposed, and, and this is the Lord sovereignly doing this. I, I believe that we're under you know, divine chastisement in the church. You know, judgment starts in the house of the Lord. And, you know, wrathful judgment in the culture at large. But I think that we've got, it's exposed the fact that we've got a lot of professing Christians in the pews that are actually practicing statists because of render to Caesar, render to God. And so you've sort of got this secular, sacred division 
that they can't seem to put together. Now, there are some faithful pastors out there in the last couple of years that have started preaching. Wait a minute. You've got Romans 13 wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what that doctrine or, or that scripture is teaching. So you're, you're pointing to the pulpits. Yes. I, I'm pointing to the pulpits because when I work everything back, you know, from the evil, you know, and I go backwards from the morass of insanity that our cultures become. When I work my way back, I end up at the pulpits because if the pulpits were faithful to Christ, what a difference it would make amongst the people and amongst the magistrates. And because the churchmen are not faithful to Christ, that's why we are in the condition we're in right now. That's why I I work myself back to the pulpits. You know, another observation you can speak to if you want, I think for, for a number of decades now in um, visible American Christianity, we've really got a compromised gospel anyway, so that we don't actually have a gospel that transforms. It's uh, a lot of decisional regeneration, uh, you know, say this prayer you're in, and and now we're going to put you to work in the church, but it doesn't truly transform people. You've been transformed. You couldn't connect not being active for the preborn with just preaching the gospel. And that is because sanctification occurs, transformation has occurred. The gospel means something in your life when it transforms you. But I think a compromised gospel has led to that, and that's largely been the result uh, of pulpits as well. Um, Absolutely. I refer to it as the false love gospel. Um, They've redefined love. And I always tell people, when you divorce the ethic of love from Scripture, you can come up with anything. You can justify anything. Yeah. Even two men or two women marrying. (laughs) Once you divorce love from Scripture. And that's why it's important that it be biblical love. And I agree with you that there is judgment. Of, I believe first and foremost, that is why all this insanity is happening yeah. is judgment begins in the house of the Lord. The form of Christianity we have in the West must be judged. And from that, I already see God building a stronger form of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a more biblical form of Christianity already emerging from the judgment that's coming upon this bad form of Christianity that's been around for decades now. Like I'm old enough to remember when the whole, you know, seeker friendly thing started. And I remember most all us ministers thought, ah, the latest fad, it'll be over with in two or three years. Boy, were we wrong. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it became the form of Christianity How much can you water everything down and avoid any kind of conflict? It's like, what are you thinking? The word of God is a sword. It divides between the bone and the marrow, reveals the thoughts and intents of men. And you want to be light. That's the biggest thing most churchmen want is to be light. And because of that, they haven't been faithful to Christ. Amen. When you shift the gospel from being about Christ to being about you, Look, look at what secret sensitive, you know, felt needs kind of uh, church growth methodology can produce. It can be very temporally successful, but uh, yes. you don't end up with anybody truly regenerate. Yeah. The uh, back to the doctrine of lesser magistrates, because this has become more well known now 
over the last couple of years because of the pandemic or the fear-demic or whatever we should call it. <laughs> but there are some leading uh, well-platformed evangelicals out there that flatly deny this as a doctrine. How, how do you respond to those guys? Yeah, I really haven't formally responded to them um, simply because I think most people see that their arguments, if they've read my book, they automatically know they're misrepresenting the doctrine. That and the arguments they make don't hold any water. So I haven't felt compelled at this point to actually pick a fight, so to speak, with any of those men. I think um, most people see it for what it is. Although when you look at the tens of thousands of likes they get for their bad stuff, it makes yeah. you wonder, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, like, I mean, they're the- out there on the they're on the side of Romans thirteen says submit, and submit means obedience. So uh, yes. it's it's pretty clear cut. But that's not actually what the text says, uh, no. you know. And uh, you get into sphere sovereignty and those kinds of things that that are also being uh, more widely understood. But uh, I mean, I've run across uh, comments, not necessarily directed at you, but at the doctrine that this is heretical. This is not remotely biblical. So when you run into somebody like that, I mean, obviously, let's think the best, you know, hope the best and uh, presume that they just need to be taught. So your book needs to get out there even more widely. I believe so. Um, Because when I, again, the things that I've seen, it's like, why even respond? They've totally misrepresented the doctrine, A, and B, their arguments are specious at best, you know, and again, this whole matter of Romans 13, which is the main thing they jump on, um, is so easy to overcome their arguments. I made an appendix in my book just on Romans 13. Yes. Many men for a long time, you know, go back to the Reformation, have written against the popular view of we should always obey no matter what. And so I wanted to use one of their writings. But what I found was, you know, the English always wasn't the best. Their syntax was a little different. And they wrote forever. <laughs> so we live a different kind of culture. So I'm like, I just boil everything down to 14 pages in a book. And I've had a number of scholars contact me saying it was the best annihilation of the wrong view of Romans 13 they've ever read in their life, which for me meant a lot to hear, you know, um, men I regard. And um, so... Yeah. So in my book, I show that there's, you know, three convincing proofs (laughs) that Romans 13 doesn't teach unlimited obedience to the state. Number one being when you look at the text itself, it doesn't say that. Just look at Romans 13, one through seven. Nowhere does it say we're always to obey the government. Rather, men impose that on the text. It's what we call eisegesis, where we read into scripture something that isn't there. Ice is the Greek word into and you're writing into the scripture something that's not there. There isn't, it isn't teaching unlimited obedience that we always obey there. In fact, there isn't one verse in the whole Bible that teaches we're always to obey. And that brings us to the second convincing proof. And that's that there's many, many passages of scripture where the people of God disobey the civil authorities and God commends them for it. Yes. You, of course, have the classic, you know, Hebrew midwives told to kill the children and they did not kill them. They interposed on their behalf to keep them alive. And then, of course, another big one is Daniel was told he couldn't pray. So one was told to do something bad. The other was told they couldn't do something good. And that's why the true standard down through Christianity for true Christianity has never been we obey, we submit, as some of these men have said on their platforms. 
No, it has been this, that when the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than the state. We are to obey God rather than man. That's the standard. And I point out to people, and I go this, go through a bunch of verses other than the two I just mentioned. And one of them I bring up is in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul himself, who penned Romans 13, knew the governor wanted to arrest him. And instead of submitting to the governor, he craftily fled down the side of a wall in a basket yeah. to flee. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, no, it, it, it's never taught that. And then the third convincing proof that I um, bring forth in my book is the fact that there's limitation clauses right within Romans 13, that the function of the civil authority is to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. Now, when they turn it all on their head, their God-given purpose on its head and begin to punish those who do good and reward evildoers, that's when we don't obey. And that's when the lesser magistrates need to interpose against the lawlessness that the superior authorities are bringing upon, upon the people. And I point out in my um, part in that book, on that appendix, but I point out that isn't it interesting, you know, because God's established three great governments, family government, church government, and civil government, all meant to produce the fourth great government within the individual known as self-government. But in those three great governments, when it comes to example for family government, it just tells children to obey their parents in all things. There's no limitation clauses, yet no one takes that to mean the parent's authority is unlimited and that the child should obey just anything. Like if a father told the 12-year-old, go down and ro- go down and rob the gas station because if you get caught, you go to juvie for a couple of days. I get caught, I go to prison for years. No one would fault the kid for not obeying dad, Yeah. right? Yeah. And when it comes to church government, Let's say a, um, a congregant finds out that the pastor's stealing money out of the offering plate. And the pastor says, oh, don't tell the elders. <laughs> you know? yeah. so yeah. No one would fault the congregant for telling the elders, even though in Hebrews 13, 7, it says, obey those who have the rule over you. There's no limitation clauses. Yet for some reason, when it comes to civil government, where there are limitation clauses, everybody thinks they have to obey no matter what. And I believe a huge part of that is the pulpits teach them wrongly. And secondly, what makes it easy for them to accept that is we live in a statist hell where the state is far. Each of those three great governments, bud, has its own role, function, and limits. Yes. And when one of them begins to invade the other jurisdiction, chaos ensues in society. And we live in a statist hell. Civil authority has invaded self-government. It's invaded family government. And unfortunately, the churches have played the whore and you know that 95% of the churches shut down their doors when the government told them to shut down their doors Mm -hmm. over this COVID thing. Yeah. And then they not only played the traitor to Christ and shut down their doors, they then played the whore and many of them took money over $14 billion has gone to churches, Christian universities and seminaries and Christian organizations because they were rewarded by the tyrants if they taught their Christian people to go along with their tyranny. Once they opened up, they did all the masking, six feet apart, putting little slimy stuff on their hands, acting like Jojo the Circus Monkey. Absolutely yeah. wicked yeah. to see what they did. And the state said churches aren't essential. And the church proved it wasn't essential. I told my fellow churchmen, I said, 
we need to stay open. Our church did. We need to stay open because we can act as a benefit to the businessmen. They're already under such a phalanx of regulation and law. We have the least to lose with our churches. Um, And we can then be a buffer for the businessmen and we can be a protector of truth. We can, all these churchmen, right? What do they say? Oh, put the mask on so you show the love of Jesus. Oh, get the vaccine so you show the love of Jesus. Participating in a lie isn't showing the love of Jesus. No. It's a violation of the ninth commandment. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter, he says it doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. In truth. We don't show love to people by spreading lies. We show love to people by telling them the truth. That's what Christian people do. So anyways, it's been crazy. Here's another couple of things real quick, if you, if you have the time here. Um, when it comes to Romans 13, one of the things some men will say is, we always obey unless they tell us we can't preach the gospel. That again goes back to this pietism thing. The truth of the matter is, yes, if they tell us we can't preach the gospel, we don't obey. But there's many instances in scripture where the people of God are told something by the civil authority that they don't obey that has nothing to do with preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. So again, the standard is not we obey unless we can't preach the gospel. The standard is when the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we obey God rather than man. The second thing they'll use is this matter of, well, we always obey unless we have to personally sin. Again, this goes back to the pietism thing. You know, unless we have to personally sin. And that is just nonsense. Did Paul have to personally sin when he fled down the side of the wall, you know, from the governor? No. And you can look at even things closer to history of where we live now. Um, You know, Corey Tembo, no one told her she had to mistreat a Jew or enslave a Jew or kill a Jew or anything. She didn't have to personally sin, but yet she still helped her neighbor. Amen. Yes. Um, And when it came to the abolitionists, Back during the 1840s, 1850s, when slavery was going on, no one told them they had to own a slave, whip a slave. They didn't have to personally sin, yet they helped the slaves get to freedom. So these standards that men have, churchmen have designed, we always obey no matter what. We always obey unless we can't preach the gospel. We always obey unless we have to personally sin. All three of them are wrong, 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 wrong. And the standard that's always been held by Christian men and is found true in scripture is when the state commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we obey God rather than man. And here's another thing that people have to understand. All three great governments established by God has their own role, function. And what was the third thing I said? Limits. And the civil authority has limits. And they have biblical limits as to what their role and function is. And we live here in America. They have constitutional limits. They don't get to do whatever they want, okay? Because some people are like, oh, well, they're not really going against Scripture telling us to put a mask on, so um, yeah, I guess we should obey. They have no right to tell us to put a mask on. We don't obey when they go outside their limits. And I always tell people, um, when it comes to this masking thing, you're aiding and abetting a lie when you put the mask on. Yeah a fiction that they've created a narrative, which they're beating everybody in the head with. We need to stand true to Christ. And what I found is I can't believe again, how many opportunities I've had to share the gospel with people because of standing true, just like when I did with the preborn, um, standing true to Christ. 
it's awesome. Amen. <laughs> so I couldn't tell yeah. you were a pastor there either. Just as you got going. <laughs> yeah. Praise um, the Lord. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much. I was going to ask you what, what would you like to say in closing, but boy, you just, you just unleashed there. And the one question I would want to close with is this, what, what do you see that gives you hope right now? What, what encouragement do you see that you could pass along to folks that will listen to this? What's encouraging to you? Yeah. People ask me that because if you talk to me privately, I'm a student of history, <laughs> I'm yeah. a student of scripture and yeah, you know, mankind never seems to learn, does he? No. And his rebellion against God, God brings his judgment, his chastisement. And we go through that again. Right. And so it's like, I do it because of my love for Christ and my love for neighbor. And I know even if we're not able to stanch or reform or stop all this tyranny and reform civil authority and the church and family and self-government, I know that there's those who will come after us that will be thankful for all the sweat we put into keeping these things before the eyes of men during this time, and that they're able to read about those things as they're building, because they're going to build. And men already are building, you know, even in the midst of all this evil, for example, when it comes to medical, I see people already building Christian medical structures because we have doctors and nurses who've been losing their jobs. You have many people because they won't take the shot. You have many people who are afraid to go to hospitals or to their doctor. And rightly so. We've seen how insane and Nazi-like they are. They won't treat you. Put a mask on or I'll let you die in front of me. You don't have a shot. You can die in front of me. You know, it's, it's evil. And so people are realizing, and this is again, this, like you talked about earlier, it's the goodness of God. This is a mercy to us. And so I see people coalescing even now. We've had a group of seven people in our congregation who are part of the medical field who've been meeting for the last two and a half months along with the leadership in the church in order to come alongside existing Christian medical structures and to create our own out of uh, from scratch. Um, and you're going to see more and more of this type of thing as things continue um, with the tyrants acting tyrannically. So what gives me the greatest hope? It's not so much the hope that, yeah, we're going to stop this at all. <laughs> it's, about, it's more my love for Christ and my love for neighbor. I can't not do it. I can't just go home. I have to continue to be faithful and true to him. Amen. Yeah. For those that have eyes to see, this is a glorious time to be a Christian because we see the hand of the Lord at work. Uh, it's, it's, you know, witnessing to the atheist who says, well, there's no God because there's evil in the world. No, you just don't understand that evil is proof there is. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I was going to say, maybe at some point you come back, because what I'd really like to get into is a discussion of Christian resistance theory, um, okay. which you touch, uh, you deal with that in, in the book. Um, yep. but I think that's an, another focus that, uh, a lot of folks in the pews don't understand. We're not supposed to resist. No, you, you just don't understand the Lord has providentially yep. worked through means and history. And this has always been a part of what the Christian has done, not only in the founding of America, but even before, uh, even oh, before absolutely. Christ in the, <laughs> in the scripture, right. like you said, there's resistance. So. Amen. So, Matt, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I'm good sir. Good to get to know you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank uh, you. May the Lord bless you, sir. Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mac. God bless you. We'll see you.
And that concludes this episode of The Bud Zone. The Bud Zone podcast is a member of the Christian podcast community where you can find scores of biblically sound podcasts for your edification and encouragement. Go to christianpodcastcommunity.org to discover more. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this show.